Hi, welcome to another Church and Gospel podcast. Uh, here at Church and Gospel, we're interested in having conversations about uh, theology, philosophy, all the things that are connected to the Christian worldview and the gospel. And we are committed to the statement that the gospel affects everything. And so uh, in these conversations, we're kind of all over the place, but all of it connects back to uh, the scriptures and the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, today we're going to have a conversation where we're thinking about education. Now, uh, we at CSU think ex- education is a good thing, and we're going to be thinking about education in the church as well and in ministry. And so today I have uh, as a conversation partner my good friend Pete Beck. Good to have you with me. Thank you. It's good uh, to be back to have a conversation. Yeah, yeah we're going to have another conversation today. Uh, and we're as, as Pete is here, uh, or Peter, excuse me, uh, as is he's here, uh, we're going to be thinking about this topic from the angle of church history. So that is the area that you have studied, uh, but you don't just study it. You think it's important for these conversations. Right. You know, thinking of the line from Hebrews chapter 11, you know, that though dead, they still speak. I think there's something we learn from all these dead guys. And you know, my students laugh that Dr. Beck's fascinated with dead people, but Dead people had something to say, and the fact that we still remember it 200 years ago in this case, or 2000, tells us that the truths are still eternal, no matter how old the person may have been when they said it. I think that's that's a, a wise way to look at it. So today we're going to be thinking about uh, this topic of Christian education, and we're going to be thinking about it through the lens of, or with the help of, uh, a, a dead guy uh, whose name is Richard Furman. So uh, maybe that's where we want to start. Who is Richard Furman? Well, if you're from the upstate of South Carolina, you know at least of the university name for him. But many people in South Carolina, Baptists or otherwise, don't realize just how influential Richard Furman himself was. Born in the 1750s, before the Revolution, key player during the Revolution. In fact, General Cornwallis put a bounty on Furman's head as a young pastor because he felt that Furman was more influential with the people in the Low Country than Francis Marion or General Sumter. And so he'd rather get rid of Furman because he believed that that preacher and his mouth and his pen could influence more hearts to support the cause than the rebels in the wilderness. And so here's this great Baptist pastor from 200 years ago that we go, oh, he's a university, or oh, he was the pastor of First Baptist Church downtown Charleston, but he was also the founder of the Charleston Baptist Association. He was the founder at the South Carolina Baptist Convention. Hmm. He was the founding one of the founders of the Triennial Baptist Missionary Movement in 1814, and in fact served as its president twice in a row for three years each. And so when you look at Baptist life or even Christian life in America, at the beginning of the true United States— Richard Furman's everywhere. Hmm. So definitely an important South Carolinian, uh, an important Baptist, but an important uh, churchman as well. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you you can't study this era without encountering Furman directly or indirectly. Hmm. Furman taught on a lot of different topics, but we do want to think specifically about this idea of education. So uh, what what was uh, Furman's position on education, or, or... how was he connected with this idea of education? It's actually ironic in one sense and not at all in the other. Furman never actually received much of a formal education. His father was a headmaster of a school over not far from CSU on Daniel Island for a short season. But it appears that Furman himself was trained by his father at home, hmm. didn't go off to school. In fact, they often referred to him as Dr. Furman, but his master degree and his PhD, his doctorate, so to speak, back then were both honorary degrees. And so... He has a large emphasis on education, but he himself didn't benefit directly from much of one. 
And so you can see that connection, that desire for him. But as he surveyed, again, think of the things he started, Charleston Baptist Association, South Carolina Baptist Convention, the Triennial Convention for Missions. Every time he was involved in the starting of something, education and a plan to support it or promote it was always part of his argument. And so it was never far from his view, never far from the top of his mind in terms of what do we need to advance the kingdom? We needed educated ministry. We need educated missionaries. We need to help prepare people for the kingdom work. Okay. So uh, this was his call uh, a long time ago, uh, but I'm sure he received pushback on this. I mean, we received pushback on this. So if if we're thinking about the ministry or thinking about gospel proclamation, what, what does education have to do with that? So why was Furman committed to incorporating a push for the importance of education in in all of these different aspects of what he was ministering in. Right. It's almost prescient when you think about his argument back then, because we tend to think here in 21st century, oh, that was the 1700s. They didn't know much. Now, of course, that's wrong. They were going through the Enlightenment. An explosion of knowledge was on the scene. And Furman argued repeatedly that if pastors or missionaries are going to engage the culture, they needed to understand the culture. They need to be able to engage them on the classics in Greek literature. They need to be able to discuss the contemporary thoughts in theology or philosophy. And so his heart was always concerned for how do we get the gospel to these people is we have to go and meet them where they are. And he believed education was the first step in that. Okay. So so that was part of his argument uh, for why we need education. Uh, were there were there other aspects of that? I, I, I read a paper that you wrote on this, or a chapter, I think it was, on the life of Furman, and you and you brought out that that he points out in church history some some dangers or some times where because there was an education, there were some uh, ramifications, some consequences. Right. I mean, yeah, he would point backwards in church history some of the heresies. He would point backwards again, ironically, for the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation. He would point to the uneducated priesthood during the time period of the Reformation that, you know, the average priest in Luther's day couldn't even read the Bible for himself. But in his own day, Furman would have also seen it. The First Great Awakening had just ended, and with it, a growing interest in letting lay people speak and preach. He wasn't against lay people, per se, (coughs) but his concern was they were unprepared. And who knew what errors they might introduce by accident? And, of course, following him, the Second Great Awakening— became even more so focused on uneducated people. And so within 50 years of Furman, in the South, many pastors were intentionally uneducated because they believed that was more spiritual. Hmm. So so Furman is, is kind of beforehand arguing against that kind of approach that would say, look, all we need is, is the gospel and let the Spirit move, and we don't need that education. Uh, Furman is recognizing some of the dangers associated with that oh, absolutely. before it takes place. Yeah, I mean, you know, starting to come out of the Second Awakening, you get to the fundamentalist movement, not fundamentals per se, but fundamentalist movement. They saw their kids going off to secular universities, getting ruined spiritually by what they were being taught. And so they began to build walls around their teenagers. They don't want to go to those schools. Let's keep them at home or let's, you know, keep them in our own education system. And so Furman understood the dangers that, you know, if people are uneducated, by which we don't mean stupid, but just not formally trained, there's a world of things coming they may be unprepared to meet. And so he was concerned for the pastors, for the missionaries, but particularly for the church. Hmm. How do we prevent the world getting into the church basically through a back door that we left open because we were unprepared for the challenges coming? 
So it sounds like you're just you're 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 not only just saying this is Furman's position, but you think he was right on this. Absolutely. I think, you know, that when you look at the general trend of history, go back even to the Bible, you know, the argument, oh, they were spirit led is true. But to argue that the disciples were uneducated is an unfair argument. They were not educated like we think in a college education, but they were educated. In fact, Jesus dedicated three plus years to train them. Paul even says, you know, that when after he was saved, that he went into the wilderness for three years. Presumably, that's where Jesus taught him about the Lord's Supper when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, the Lord told me these things. And so the argument today that we still hear that we don't need to be educated, that we need to be spirit-led, my answer is always, why can't it be both? Hmm. Yeah, so in, in philosophy, we talk about an either-or fallacy. It's it's presenting either you're spirit-led or you let education uh, shape the way you you approach things. And And we're saying... That doesn't need to be the case. It's not an either-or that the Holy Spirit can use training uh, to accomplish His purposes. Exactly. Paul, a perfect example. Not only was he trained by Jesus for however long, possibly discipled by Barnabas, that's education, but what was Paul's training before he even became a Christian? For years, he'd been trained to become a Pharisee. And so Paul's entire ability to take the gospel to Jews first and then the Gentiles is predicated on the fact that he was educated for both. Right. You see in, in Acts, certainly he was trained uh, as a Pharisee, but you also see that he had training in the, the philosophical thought of his day, so he could quote uh, poets and philosophers when he's talking to folks on Mars Hill. So definitely that training came into play as he's proclaiming the gospel. Exactly. Message. And that's what Furman's driving at, is that the examples that we see in history, education has been positive. Not always, but generally positive uneducated, intentional uneducated, has been potentially dangerous. Not always, but sometimes. And so Furman's desire was, let's avoid that. And what better way to do it than to provide our own education, if you will. You know, there were no real Christian colleges in the South at that point. You know, many of the Baptist preachers in the South in the early 1800s had to go North, particularly to what became Brown University in Rhode Island. So Furman's desire was, was how do we get it at home so our pastors who can't leave, who can't go away, can get what they need to be further prepared. And eventually he brought the same argument to the table for the necessity of seminaries as well. Because at that point there were really no seminaries per se, especially not in the South. Hmm. So uh, Furman saw this need and saw that uh, education, a Christian education, was part of the solution. So if if we're worried about the false doctrines, we're worried about the false teaching, we don't avoid that by by sheltering ourselves or not uh, not encountering it, but encountering it in a context uh, where we're being taught from the Christian worldview. So uh, we don't we don't avoid, but we engage. Exactly. You know, he's going to call for reading the same poets that you would have been reading at the more secular universities at that point already. He's going to call for reading the philosophy of what's going on in the Enlightenment in Europe. That's who your pastor is going to engage on the street in downtown Charleston or in Columbia at the time. And so he says, we need to read them, but the what's on the page is not the problem. It's how do we interpret it? And so ultimately the goal is, as you said, to shape worldviews. Let's teach our pastors how to engage the culture with the gospel rather than trying to shy away from the gospel or the culture because we're going to be gospel only. Yeah. 
I think that's a, a great word for us today. So maybe in closing, is there any kind of admonition that you would give as a Christian educator uh, to someone who is um, is thinking about ministry or engaged in ministry and just on this topic? Well, I think if you borrow you know, the language from Paul to Timothy, we're told to study to show ourselves approved. Now, clearly Paul means study Scripture. But the study of Scripture, the deeper you go, the more you learn the more equipment, the more tools you need to bring to the table. So further education, whether it be seminary eventually, or even, you know, an undergraduate degree is the beginning of that. The larger thing we since have realized in the last 200 years is our pastors are not the only people engaging the culture. You know, back in the day when you worked your farm and you knew the people around your farming community, you were around people like you. In the 21st century, statistics tell us we're not around people like us that we're becoming a smaller and smaller minority in America in terms of an evangelical, conservative Christian culture. And so education helps prepare us, just like Furman had predicted, on how to engage people from Pakistan. How do we deal with people who are coming from, you know, almost in a sense a godless society and maybe in Europe? And so by educating, in our case here at CSU, young people, young men and women, we're preparing them not only to learn jobs, to go out and earn an income, we're helping shape how they view the rest of the world. And as they go through life, how they're going to interact with every corner of the world and culture, not just what they hear for an hour on Sunday morning only. Right. So um, this is connected with not just pastors or not just those who maybe have an official capacity of, of ministry, but really, as Scripture tells us in Ephesians, all of us, all the saints are to do the work of the ministry. And part of that work of the ministry, especially in our context, is engaging a culture that has a lot of ideas that are antithetical to to what God would say is true. And so we need to understand those so that we can engage. Exactly. Yeah. The whole goal is for us to be equipped to take the gospel outward, not to build up a wall to protect the gospel inward. And so as I often use the kind of the turn of a phrase with students and people, and I'm trying to tell them why I think what we do is so important here and why they ought to also engage it, whether sending their children or getting themselves educated, is that ultimately our goal is not information, but it's transformation. And it begins with the student, and then from there it pours outward so that like a rock in a pond, that little pebble we throw in, that first wave is fascinating for us as the educator, but what we realize is the wave is going to spread outward. And where it ends, to me, is the fascinating. Who knows what I teach today might impact a life, two, three, four generations down the way, who'd never heard the gospel until a descendant, perhaps one of our students, interacted with their parent at work, and the next thing you know, the gospel takes root in a whole new city or new culture and spreads from there. So God's providence and the Holy Spirit's intervention don't have to be at odds with uh, education, but God can use these uh, these things, uh, training, study uh, for His glory and for His purposes. Exactly. Right. As Paul says, you know, do all things for the glory of God. That doesn't mean just do church for the glory of God. Well, that's, I think that's a good place for us to wrap our conversation up. Thanks, Peter, for taking some time to talk with us today. It's always good to get to reflect on how we can learn from church history, not just for an academic purpose, but for transformation so that we can be challenged by those who have gone before us. So thank you for joining us today on the Church and Gospel podcast. Uh, tune in next week when we'll have another conversation about the gospel. The gospel.